Hi, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noir Presents in collaboration with Pause Fest. We've got a really exciting guest this week. We caught up with Paolo Malabuyo, who leads the UX team at Google's YouTube Video Ads. Now, Paolo is a really accomplished UX designer. He's got a career that has spanned a number of really high-profile tech companies um, in Silicon Valley, uh, having worked at Microsoft, Netflix, IBM, and Mercedes as a UX designer. He spends a lot of time thinking about user experience design and, and design in general, and also leading teams. His talk at Pause Fest this year was about the five Ps, which is a practical framework that he's put together around leading teams. So we discussed that as well as some insights on working for such innovative companies and, and how you go about fostering a culture of innovation. Um, and I was really interested to get some insights from him on just his thoughts on the state of UX design currently in 2019 and, and maybe what it takes to become a UX designer. It was a real pleasure to talk to him. I'm a big fan of his work um, and I feel like I learned a lot. So I really hope you do too. So without further ado, let's jump in with Paolo. Hi, Paolo. Pleasure to have you on the Digital Noir Presents podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. That's quite all right. We're all busy, right? We're all busy. I don't like that word that much, but uh, yeah. I know. I'm trying to purge that from my from my own vocabulary. <laughs> Me too. Uh, you know, when people ask you how you are, it's, it is just that default reaction, isn't it? And it, it's, it's hard not to say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you were down at a pause fest earlier in the year. Um, was that your first time out to Australia? Yes. First oh, wow. time, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere. Wait, no. But yeah, first time to Australia, though. What was your experience like? Um, it was great. And oh my God, it's far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the world can be, it can feel sometimes so big and sometimes so small. But my experience there was, oh man, it's big. Um, and it was great. I actually wish I had more time because all I had, uh, I had a chance to see a little bit of Melbourne. And I actually took a day trip. I had one day before I got on a late uh, flight out um, to and did a tour out to the coast. Nice. And actually saw you know saw the the wonderful sights of nature uh, a few a couple hours out. Beautiful. Uh, so I had a good time. So did you get down to the uh, the Twelve Apostles, or was it down to Lawn or something like that? Yeah. So yeah, Twelve Apostles, which I guess there aren't really twelve. But, no. Uh, <laughs> I got to see the Twelve Apostles. Uh, and uh, a few other sites on the way. What was your experience like at Pause Fest? Did you enjoy the conference? Obviously, you were only there for a couple of days, but yeah. Um, I mean, I always find it interesting uh, to hear what other people have to say. Hmm. Um, it's it's a great opportunity to kind of get out of um, you know our own bubbles. And here I am. I work in the middle of Silicon Valley, uh, in California, in the U.S., and you know these are all, to some degree, bubbles. So um, you know, it's a. I find it uh, a great benefit of what I do to go out and uh, and listen to other people and kind of see a little bit more about their context. So I thought it was great. Speaking about bubbles, um, so being in the US and looking out to Australia, uh, do you hear much about what's happening in the Australian design or tech scene, or is it? Um, not a lot. Mm. Um, it's not something that uh, that seems to 
show up a lot in kind of the channels that I uh, that, that normally you know pierce my everyday reality. Uh, but it's honestly it's one of the reasons why um, I took the opportunity to go uh, to Pausefest um, to actually kind of uh, see that for myself. Beautiful. Well, hopefully we can get you back over sometime soon. Be great. I'd love it. So you're currently at Google leading the UX team at YouTube Video Ads. Is that correct? Yeah. So YouTube Ads user experience team. Beautiful. Um, tell me a little bit about your your day to day role there and what you do as as a team leader. Sure. So I think a lot of people are probably familiar with YouTube. I, would hope so. uh, I imagine that uh, many people who may be listening to this have used YouTube in uh, in uh, recently in their day to day lives. And part of uh, my team's job or our mission is to really create a healthy ecosystem around YouTube. And when we say a healthy ecosystem, it really is comprised of uh, the fact that YouTube ha is free for billions of people worldwide where they can come uh, watch great, you know, free content. Um, the content's created by creators. And they do this because they can express themselves, create a community, and for some of them, monetize. And then you got advertisers um, who are interested in effectively reaching viewers, who are interested in their products and services. Um, and having this great ecosystem means that viewers get what they want, creators get what they want, and advertisers get what they want. Um, so at the high level, that's what we do. And that's what my team is focused on. Um, and I've got um, different parts of the organization are then focused on different parts of this ecosystem. Nice. Um, I saw, I think it was in one of your other talks, I actually saw it in another talk at PauseFest, uh, some of the, the work you've been doing in terms of bringing out new ways of, of serving ad content. I think it was that Campbell's Soup example that had come out of Australia yep. in terms of actually, yep. do, do you want to talk about um, that technology and what, what that enables? Sure. Uh, so you're referring to director mix. Yep. Uh, and so one of the pillars in uh, in our org is you know we call creative uh, creative tools. Um, a little bit of context there is um, people know that Google is, we have a massive ads platform, right? It's it's our primary source of revenue is advertising. Uh, you know, helping keep the web free. And uh, you've probably used Google search recently, I have. And creating a search ad is relatively straightforward. Um, you need some, I describe it as sometimes you just need some words. Uh, you need some words that you care about, you know, maybe uh, Melbourne and coffee shop or you know, things like that. And you can, um, with that, you can relatively easily create a search ad. Um, on the other end of the spectrum is creating a video ad, right? Videos are hard to make, even though we all have smartphones and, you know, with cameras and, and microphones, but creating a good, effective uh, video is actually quite hard. Um, and so we've got a um, set of tools um, to enable people to easily create um, either, if you're a small to medium business, to create an ad because uh, create a video ad because it's not something that you're 
you have expertise in, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is you may be um, a company that is very familiar with advertising, very familiar with video advertising, and but you want to take advantage of the power um, that's inherent in digital, which you know for w one really powerful thing is customization and personalization. Sure. Um, and that becomes a very difficult scalability issue. So you mentioned Campbell Soup um, using uh, kind of an early version of this technology where they were able to create um, kind of short ads that I'm trying to remember exactly how many. It was like over was like a thousand. 1,700, I think, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Uh, <laughs> a lot. Imagine making 1,700 videos yeah. manually. Right, where you're trying to create, um, you know, it's a different, they essentially used a different tagline that was related to topical things that you may be searching for and uh, kind of a different can of soup that a company is like, oh, we've got a soup for that, was kind of their tagline. Um, 1700, that's a lot. Like, that's essentially a recipe for someone to probably develop carpal tunnel syndrome yeah. really, really badly. <laughs> um, and so, so Director Mix is a tool that enables um, advertisers who are interested in taking advantage of the power of customization uh, at scale um, to be able to generate 1,700 or more uh, variations of a video ad without having to create 1,700 different videos by hand. Right? They actually create a... a file, a smart file that is, you know, just structured in the right way that says, okay, well, here's a, here's a text layer that's, mm. uh, that will, um, you know, can be changed here. Maybe is an image, uh, that can change. And then we will, uh, we will actually then render all of that, uh, in the cloud. And, and then all those are, can be served to the appropriate audiences, uh, at the right time on YouTube. Which is incredible. So if you're watching, uh, I don't know, a Game of Thrones trailer or something on YouTube at the time, then you could be served with the Campbell's soup with the uh, the Game of Thrones uh, copy yeah. on there. Winter is coming, stay Winter. warm. Exactly. You know, like, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, there was actually another recent one. I think it was also the Australia team um, did one for The Grinch, the movie. Okay. Um, and they did the same thing where um, they served up a whole bunch of really interesting you know, short ads with the Grinch being sarcastic uh, based on the search that, that you said. And it's like if you did a search for, um, you know, for food, it would kind of make fun of like eggnog and you know, kind of the stuff that you might want to serve uh, for Christmas. And um, they also then did customization based on where you were and actually give you like showtimes. To okay. nearby, uh, to, to to nearby theaters. It's like, yeah, in, that's hard to do by hand, uh, and you know, uh, Director Mix is kind of this great tool that's really serving a very unique uh, need, um, and we're seeing it being used to great effect. Exciting. Um, you've spoken and written a lot about culture and leadership um, across your career, and you've been lucky enough to work at some organizations, which I suppose are pretty globally recognized for having great team culture. Um, I'm interested to know yourself as a leader, how do you enable a culture of innovation? Um, great question. If you figure that out, let me know. Um, <laughs> I was hoping for some insights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the caveat is I'm one of the, it's a great privilege for me to have had the exposure with all these companies. So I don't think I've figured it out, um, but I've definitely, 
Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, and I don't think that there's really a one size fits all solution because each company, each organization has its own culture. Um, and uh, you can't apply either a process blindly uh, into any culture, like it's chemistry <laughs> to some degree. Um, uh, or another metaphor that I've, that's kind of been in my head is, uh, there's a, uh, I'm blanking on the book right now, but it's uh, about child psychology or you know, how parents uh, approach uh, parenting um, about being uh, gardeners or being our carpet carpenters, right? Uh, and when I remember hearing about this, um, I did think about leadership and corporate leader, team leadership and I actually felt like, you know, teams are very much like gardens. Um, they're not buildings. Um, you don't set out to say, here's the plan, I'm going to build it, I'm going to build it perfectly, and there it is, right? Um, it is more like a garden where you need to have a good sense for what do you have? Uh, what's your environment, right? There are some things you can't change, uh, but there are some things you can. So having a good understanding of what you, what, what you can and can't change, what are the elements that you've got to play with, and then having enough insight, sensitivity, and judgment to be able to know when is it appropriate to shield? When is it appropriate to expose to sunlight? When might you have to weed and actually, or even removes, uh, remove something from the situation and transplant something? Uh, and what's the right amount of bullshit uh, for fertilizing, right? <laughs> if you want to extend the metaphor that yeah. way. That's, um, that's a beautiful analogy, actually. It's, uh, I think it's actually quite fitting. Cause, and, and, then, and then it's looking at each, I suppose, individual plant in, as, in its own right. And, and how do you tend to that, that particular um, Correct. Right. Like if you want to, and if you want to really like extend the metaphor uncomfortably, yeah. right? Like <laughs> you need to give it some freedom to grow. Yeah. You don't, it's not deterministic, right? In some ways you're like, you hope for an outcome. Mm. You hope for a bumper crop, you and you create the conditions for that to happen. You do everything. And at some point you just have to let go and see what happens. Right. And respond appropriately. So in terms of creating that kind of culture, what I do try and do is, um, you know, have enough sensitivity to what's going on so that I can respond appropriately. Um, give direction, right? Like you have to give it some direction. Yep. Um, uh, and you have to give, you know, teams enough leeway to go do what they're there to do. Uh, you know, here we try a lot at Google, we try, we try very hard to give people the sense of psychological safety, right? Okay. Where um, you've got the, the ability to go try out new things, uh, maybe potentially fail at it, but try. Um, it's not deterministic. It's, yeah. it's a lot of gardening and a lot of planning and a lot of effort. But without psychological safety, um, all you're going to have are people who are just going to self-confine sure. to to the safe uh, to 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 what they feel is um, appropriate? Um, you know, I've had great success uh, working for in teams and people where they've given people enough freedom to go do what they think is right. Like, why do you hire smart, uh, motivated people? 
so that they can go be smart and motivated and maybe you can maximize that. Um, so yeah, gardening. I think that's a, that's a beautiful analogy. I think there's a book in there somewhere for someone to write. At Pause Fest, uh, you were talking about um, the five P's, which is a, um, a framework that um, that you've been thinking about and put together. Um, I know we can't go through it in, in full detail, but did you want to quickly just run through what those what those five P's were, and, and sure. how, and how uh, that relates to, to teams and building products? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think related to even your earlier question, mm-hmm. you know, if I had the opportunity to uh, be exposed to many different. Um, companies and ways of doing things to different leaders. And over time, I've realized that um, I've seen elements of this and I've been trying to um, create a way to make sense of it for myself. So the not sexy way of answering your question is I've got a really crappy memory and I like mnemonics. <laughs> I like ways that help. I, I like, um, you know, shortcuts to help me remember things. And so I call them the five P's because, hey, it's a lot easier for me to remember. Uh, and they are uh, in this particular order. And I'll explain um, principles. So these are the fundamental values and beliefs that guide behaviors and decisions. People. This is the team that embodies those principles and the users and the customers that they serve. Priorities, what's important for the business and the people. Process, just enough structure to enable the pursuit of those priorities. And lastly, the product. At the end of the day, is the outcome when evaluated against the principles good? And I do think that they are, they, I think about them in that order. Um, you know, pretty much almost every um, important decision that I'm involved in. I try to think like, what's, what are the underlying principles that actually help us make a decision? Uh, so the decisions are not arbitrary. It gives them some direction. Like what, what do you stand for? Right. And then the team that you have around you, do they share those same values? Because you're not gonna, you're not gonna like the outcome. If you, if you have a whole bunch of people, um, who really are not, who are not grounded in the same set of principles. Um, and then do you have a clear understanding of the people that you are actually building and designing for? And then the priorities, what are we doing and what are we not doing? And maybe the principles can actually even help you evaluate that, understanding who the people are, both your, the team and the people you're designing for, help you figure out the right priorities and then process. And, there, and I make it a very, it's, a, it's an explicit choice to say, you don't start with process. You know, there are a lot of, I've been involved in, in teams that, done, that have done that where process first, they put the process ahead of everything. Um, there are people in, in the world of UX, it's like, hey, it's all about design thinking, let's say, like it's just the design process. Um, and I feel like you can't fix, you can't fix with process what might be a fundamental values uh, disconnect or a problem with, with culture, right? process should be there to support people's pursuit of something um, and it can't be super rigid the asterisk on this there are places where yes process needs to be strongly adhered to like if you're talking about safety you know i worked at mercedes-benz for a couple years um, and i've you know walked through these massive um, factories where cars are being built by people and robots and there's sparks uh, flying around and massive like tonnage, uh, kind of on, on cranes moving around. Yeah. Safety matters. And there are reasons why in, in certain environments, yeah, adhere to the process because someone might get hurt. But most of us in, in tech, um, 
the products that we're working on, very rarely are the decisions we're making right here, right now, actually life or death. Um, and we're all trying to do all these different processes to try and help us be better at what we do. But I believe you don't lead with process. Process should be in support of everything else. And then lastly, the product is you have to evaluate, is what you're producing good? And I think people often make the mistake of even leading with the product as well. They put the product first and then there may be product process um, yeah. without having uh, those uh, key principles and, and the people that are actually going to uh, build the thing up above that. Exactly. Exactly. And hey, congratulations. I found five Ps. It's easy <laughs> to remember. <laughs> I'm interested to know. So um, uh, we're, we're a um, web and app design development agency. Um, so we're building products for clients most of the time. Um, so within those five P's, so understand how that would work, obviously, within our organization. But if we're going out to a, a third-party client, I'm interested, to, I suppose, because process becomes important when we're working to a, um, you know, a scope of work. So whether that be agile or waterfall, whatever, whatever the process is. But um, principles and people and priorities, how do you see that working in kind of a service provider um, landscape? Yeah, I think, um, and caveat, I've never worked on the agency side. I've always been <laughs> in-house, right? So I am definitely speaking uh, sure. uh, speaking at this as only having experienced one side of the table. Um, but that said, you know, uh, I don't think it's completely foreign when you, um, you know, as a UX organization, whether as an agency or even as an internal central team, you know, I've been involved in that as well. Um, I think it's still fair uh, to say you may have an engagement model. But wouldn't you like to know, and don't we already ask these kinds of questions? Like, what do you care about, you know, asking the client? Is it more, like, is it more important for you, like this budget, let's say, that's black and white? Um, and is the schedule completely locked in? Or what is it you care, like truly care about? Is it about, is it about you know, a groundbreaking idea? Is it about deeply understanding the, you know, if it's a research project, deeply understanding that or like finding really different uh, cool insights like and organizationally, what do they care about? Like from a principal's perspective, what does success look like above and beyond? Here's the process. You know, why do agile? Like I said, that's actually one of the reasons why um, years ago I went down this path of trying to make sense of where process fits because I remember when Agile was being kind of reintroduced into the vernacular, um, the implied principle was speed, right? Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about speed then. Let's talk about velocity. Let's not talk about Agile. Yeah, Right. why use the process? Uh, How does that apply to correct. the principle? Yeah. Exactly. Like a lot of these processes, it's not like I don't like process. You know, mm. I'm a, I actually, I really like process, but don't do process for process sake. Apply the right process because it helps you actually um, pursue something according to a set of principles that you care about. Agile implies that you care about speed. Just to, you know, if, if, if I um, you know, make that connection. Um, Agile also seems to seems to imply um, having something tangible and testable uh, so that you can uh, try it and iterate, right? Uh, and so on. Like 
I've done Agile. I've studied the Agile. I've read the Agile manifesto. Um, but at the end of the day, if your fundamental problem is cultural or, or a core principle in the organization or a business model, I'm sorry, the process is not going to help you. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think, uh, yeah, some good insights there. Um, so your background is obviously as a designer. I believe you, you studied, uh, was it art and art and design in college? That's correct. Beautiful. And again, I suppose you've been lucky enough to work well through, you know, a, a boom in uh, user interface design um, and, and come through some really interesting products. I think starting out at IBM, working on um, productivity software um, and then going through Xbox 360 um, and through your time at, at Netflix. What, what kind of changes have you seen overall? It's a big question in, in the sort of UI design landscape. And then what do you see, you know, on the horizon coming ahead? Great question. Um, yes. So I've been kind of lucky in that I started my career around the time when tech was just really starting to get traction, right? Mid nineties saw the rise of Microsoft, uh, and, uh, personal computing yeah. uh, to a great degree. You know, when I graduated from college, I mean, co college was the first time I had an email address, <laughs> right? And when I graduated college, there was no such thing as portable email addresses yet. Like even colleges hadn't figured out how to give alumni email addresses. Like, nope, sorry, you graduated, no more email. Um, and, you know, my first non-company uh, or, or uh, school related email address was hotmail. It's like, Oh, that was awesome. Like you got my hotmail address. Um, and you know, I've, I've definitely been the beneficiary from a career perspective of seeing that, you know, tech has become, um, something that ev that affects everyone's lives. Right. Um, back then when I graduated, not everyone's households had computers. Right. Um, now, you know, people generally tend to have m multiple computers, right? What are these mobile devices in our pockets? They are computers. Um, and, and a lot of people, I can't say everyone, but a lot of people, more people have um, computers and internet uh, pretty much at their fingertips. Um, and so, you know, these people's lives have changed radically. Uh, in the time of that, which has created opportunities for people like myself. All of a sudden, when it's no longer just um, people who have to use these things for work, I need to use, you know, I need, I need to understand how to use a spreadsheet and build a spreadsheet in order to run my business, or I need to use this, uh, you know, this um, productivity tool because that's how I get paid. Um, consumer tech pretty much lives or dies based on the quality of the experience that it provides. Right. Uh, and so it created opportunities for people like myself who, uh, try to give technology a more human face, right? So you can actually figure out this Venn diagram of, um, is it usable? Is it useful? And is it beautiful? Right. Uh, and the Venn diagram overlap of all three is where you found delight. That now matters, whereas it used to be before all this, um, uh, everyone had tech at their fingertips. All you really needed was the utility. 
it just needed to do something because if you didn't have that, well, you're screwed. Um, and to make things usable, you need to have people who understand human behavior and, you know, and, and have the ability to do research, uh, do usability testing and, and so on. Um, and then for the beauty, and that's just kind of aesthetically pleasing. Now you got people who specialize in um, the aesthetics, the, uh, the motion, the pixel perfect uh, nature of things, um, the, the shape, the form. Uh, in addition to the utility, which you know, design has now actually played a part in that in terms of deeply understanding the problem in order to give you the solution and that the combination of all three, you know, the tech that we all love, and, and now we can actually say people love tech, you know, there are things that you know, people won't give up. Um, it's because it gives them that uh, sense where all three come together. And it's interesting, um, you know, some of these interfaces that didn't exist when when we were growing up but you look at um, the younger generations just how adept they are at that you know and navigating um, interfaces which which were alien to us even you know 10 15 years mm -hmm. ago um, and it'd be interesting in that usability testing just how differently potentially generations yesterday I was um, I had an old citizen chronograph watch that I was I had a battery replaced and was trying to reset it and I mean literally working out how to how to do that? Well, you know, it was 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 difficult. I did, had had to find an old manual PDF online because you know it wasn't that intuitive. It was you know pull this out, press these three buttons for five seconds. You know, so um, I feel like interfaces have become much more intuitive um, over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, part of that is because it's really become tech and consumer tech is trying has a broader audience than it ever used to be. Right. Um, it used to be that p only people who had computers were um, kind of very tech minded, like they didn't mind that stuff. Right. It wasn't unusual back in the 90s if you actually had a computer that you built it yourself or at least a certain amount of it you, you cobbled together. Um, and, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, speeds and feeds. Right. How, how fast is the thing? How much memory does it have? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and so you could get away with, it does this, it has a bigger number next to it and it does it. Um, whereas now, yeah, generationally the expectations are now super different. Um, I mean, but the inverse is true. I actually saw this really, uh, funny video, um, where they showed a couple, I think looks like a couple of teenage, uh, teenage boys, um, showed them a rotary phone. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and they were trying to, and just like, here, figure it out, figure out how to use it. Yeah. Um, and the, it took them a while. <laughs> and it's funny when you see it, uh, when you see it that way, like we, you know, growing up, that's, that's how phones worked and everyone knew how they worked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you intuit things. It's what you're used to, I suppose, to a certain extent, like resetting it, the, um, the clock on a, an, an old analog car you know it's just intuitive to sort of hold down buttons or whatever whatever that that design might be exactly. but um you wouldn't think about doing that if you if you'd never seen it the interface before yeah exactly like i think there are very um there are very very few things that we would actually or should actually appropriately call intuitive right because most everything is some kind of a learned behavior um the you know among the small category of things that is really kind of more intuitive 
or at least has the potential to be more intuitive. And thankfully, we live in a time where this is more possible. It's touchscreens, right? Like you've seen, um, you know, babies uh, who can't read, maybe not even super verbal, but they can somehow use uh, <laughs> a, a, a tablet or a smartphone. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are some things that kind of speak to a deeper a deeper connection to how we actually see and, and interact with the world. And that's one of them. Um, very, very few things I think are actually truly intuitive um, at the most generic level. Um, I'm conscious of your time. So just one more question. Um, uh, if you had a, a piece of advice for, for an up and coming designer um, that was looking to get into user experience design or, or into the, into the um, tech world at all, what, what would that be? There's never been a better time for the UX field. So that's good, you know, there, that there is uh, a lot of possibility. This also means that with the proliferation of consumer tech and, uh, you know, the, inter the ubiquity of the internet and the availability of resources, references, and tools, it's never been easier to actually get into it. Um, I've got a very deep-seated belief that there are very, very few things that humans, um, that your, your, your average human is incapable of. Like everything else, like watch any other person do something you can do that too. There may be, you know, on the fringes, right? Okay, great. No matter how many times, how often I, I, I will practice basketball, I won't be LeBron James or Michael Jordan, right? Um, but aside from, you know, people like that, whether it's a mental or physical, uh, you know, advantage, um, almost everything else is simply someone having maybe some specialized information and practice. So that means that if someone is interested in getting to, whether it's UX or whether it's some other thing, guess what? The, the, the barrier to entry has never been lower. You can literally, if, as, as long as you have some access to, uh, to the internet, and some kind of creative device, you know, maybe you're talking more of a laptop rather than, than a smartphone um, for, you know, making stuff. Um, God, like references galore. You can read all this free stuff. You can watch tutorials online. Like, go to YouTube for, I, mean, I go to YouTube to, for, to learn everything. I had to rewire something in my house. The first thing I did was I go to YouTube and I watched someone do it. Like, so getting into UX has never been easier just in terms of the references that you have, right? So the knowledge, the specialized knowledge is actually distributed, right? It's all out there. Um, books up the wazoo, <laughs> um, you know, and then you can like go Google top UX books and like go find the, the first two. Um, and then tools have never been easier to get. Uh, and you can, there are trial 
subscriptions to all these tools so you can literally have them for free for a month or two or something. Um, and back to the uh, principles of access to information and practice, well then practice. <laughs> Barrier to information is very low, so nothing preventing you from doing that, right? Like bl people blog all the time, people are like, people are giving information away for free. If you want, you can actually go study them. There are lots of schools and lots of programs where you can get a certificate, but you don't need to, right? And then the tools, man, like start making stuff. Like people, like get through the suck before you can get good. <laughs> um, make stuff, make stuff that sucks <laughs> uh, and figure out why it sucks. And then you'll, you'll get past the point where, where you're, you're, you know, you're now making stuff that's like, oh, that's kind of good. Um, get people to look at it. Like you can practice the design process, the UX uh, methodologies um, and do them for real such that you can build, you know, the, the, the muscle memory. And next thing you know, you're in UX. Get, get your hands dirty. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I actually read, I was reading your blog um, yesterday and I really enjoyed. Oh, the, you're the one. <laughs> the little insight um, you had about um, the whiteboard uh, when you started at IBM. I think that actually sums up what you were just talking about really well. I don't know if you want to just quickly relay that story. Sorry, say that again. You cut out briefly. Sorry. Um, when you, I think when, when you first started at IBM and you were noticing people um, in meetings using whiteboards uh, poorly. Mm. Um, I thought that was a quite an interesting little insight into sort of how, how your mind works as a designer. But um, I think that that goes back to that principle of practice makes perfect, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of become an early story for me in terms of, you know, this is literally my first job out of school. Uh, and this was back when, when you got joint tech, people had offices. <laughs> so I had an office um, and I found, and this is true today, right? Um, almost every office, um, you got whiteboards all over the wall and people, when they talk and they meet and you're on the whiteboard, right? You're, you're writing stuff and stuff. And I came to recognize that almost everyone who got up on the whiteboard really sucked at it. Um, and some basic things, sometimes it's just illegible or, uh, you know, how often have you seen someone try to write like something that's a little bit longer than like six, six inches and, and it starts to curve downwards, right? Um, and all these things just made whatever was on the wall become less useful than it could have been. And I, and I kind of saw this and, and I was like, oh, well, when I got up and, and I tried, I was like, man, this is actually harder than I thought. Um, and it, it was now that I think about it, it's probably unusual that here's this 22 year old kid who's kind of thinking about this, but I did. And I saw them like, okay, well, a couple times a week, when I, once I came to recognize this, you know, at the end of the day, I'd close my door and I would literally practice writing on my whiteboard um, for, you know, 30, 45 minutes. Um, imagine just like writing the alphabet <laughs> going across. Um, I would draw grid lines and see, can I actually reasonably write, you know, draw horizontal lines and draw vertical lines. Um, I would sometimes recreate my notes and just, just to see if I can do that. Um, and then once I get a little bit more comfortable with it, then I would actually volunteer in meetings to actually like, hey, okay, uh, who, who can get on the whiteboard? I'll take notes. Um, and then I noticed that people noticed that my notes were actually good. Um, and 
and actually people would actually ask me to do this. And yes, sometimes it's a pain if you're saying like, here, be the stenographer for this meeting. But I also realized that's a side benefit that I did not plan for is that when you're the one up there on the board with a pen, you actually have the, uh, the opportunity to actually interject uh, more than if you were just sitting down. Because guess what? You're writing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you're standing up in front of the, in, in front of the group. Um, and next thing you know, um, like I was able to influence the conversation that I was a part of more because I was literally the one with the pen and, and, and uh, capturing the conversation. Um, so I found in this one simple experience of uh, recognizing that here's this thing that everyone does, but it's not being done super well. Um, I'm not quite that good at it too, but I dedicated time to go do it. Um, and it had these additional benefits of, you know, it made me more comfortable standing up in front of a group of people. Look, remember, this is my first job. Um, and it also then gave me uh, a soapbox <laughs> inadvertently uh, to be able to actually interject and speak. Um, and it's, you know, that, that lesson's kind of carried with me to this day. It's like, here's something I don't know. Well, maybe it's something I can actually just practice and do uh, myself. I think that's a really great story and a great insight and sums up some of the other points you made. So thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with us here today, Paolo. My pleasure. It was a, it was a nice chat. Time went by quick. It did. It always does. Um, well, hopefully we can get you back down. Thanks so much for coming down to Pause Fest and we'd love to see you back down in Australia sometime soon. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Beautiful. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Hi, it's Sam here again. Thanks so much for listening. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Paolo. If you'd like to find out more about Paolo, you can just Google him and there's a bunch of his keynotes up on YouTube, as you would expect. Um, his blog is something I, I definitely recommend checking out. Uh, it's i4design.com, I and then the number 4design.com. And if you're interested in finding out more about opportunities at Google, especially in the design sphere, check out design.google.com for more information. We'll be releasing another podcast from Pause next month. So until then, you can check us out on Digital Noir Presents. Just Google that. You'll find the backlog of all of our podcasts. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you next month. Cheers. Bye.